Picture a baby. They're lying down, right? Think again. Today's book is Born Standing Up by Steve Martin. I'm Kellen Erskine. I'm a comic and a father, just like how Steve Martin was a comic and then became a father when he was 67. (laughs) Kellen's doing those in the reverse order. I'm David Vance. I don't do stand-up, but I do like it when everyone shuts up so I can talk for a long time. Born Standing Up teaches lessons from the career of Steve Martin, arguably the most successful stand-up comic of all time. I say arguably because Kellen argues it's himself. And this is The Book Pile. Here's one of my favorite reviews from the last week. My own private Idaho says, The host's rapport is entertaining and hilarious, and I've actually picked up a few books based on what I've heard on this podcast. We love hearing that. Especially because we get royalties on all books. (laughs) No, we don't. No authors have contacted us yet with that deal. If anything, Dale Carnegie, based on what we said about his book last week, he's going to come up from hell and start haunting us. (laughs) Our guest today is an actor and a stand-up who's been on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon, Conan. Please welcome Matthew Brossard. Hey, Matthew. Hey, Matthew. Hey, thank you for having me. I enjoy introducing comics because I feel like I know how to do it. Like, (laughs) meaning, like, the biggest rule, I think, and the only rule in an introduction is that the the comic's name is last. Like, I don't know. I don't know how many times, like, especially with corporate shows where the person in charge will literally just, like, read an outdated bio from... Full bio. I, bet, I don't know how they found it. They'll start like holding the paper in front of, you know, 500 people. Kellen Erskine is a stand up comedian from Los Angeles. And then, like, go on. And two minutes later, it'll end with, and he also performed at the Great American Comedy Festival in 2011. <laughs> and then just sort of like <laughs> hand the mic out as I'm walking. It's, some of the intros read like the author's bio in the inner sleeve of a book. <laughs> yes. Like Matthew Broussard was born to working class parents in 1988. There's a college show where a student brought me on stage. I didn't realize it. And they were reading my whole bio from the website. And I was yelling at them from the side of the stage. Just stop. Just bring me up. Just bring me up now. We can still save this. So, Matthew, I, w- I was going to tell a quick story about you and I driving to a gig together. But you said that you had a story about us meeting. And I don't I don't know that I remember what, what you're about to say. So, what, uh, so you, what happened? You weren't there for, for this, really. Um, you, I was performing at the Comedy and Magic Club, which is, is a very prestigious, very well-run comedy club in uh, Hermosa, Hermosa Beach. And I was in the green room. There's actually scenes from um, Gary Shanling's documentary shot in that green room. It's a really great green room. The comics are all sitting around and there's a video screen playing of the comic on stage. It's a, it's a full screen TV. Usually the, the, the conversation between comedians is the most powerful noise in the room. And I'm sitting there and I haven't met you yet. And you're on the screen and I, I didn't recognize you. And I watched for just a, a few seconds and you do the bike lock bit. And I elbow the guy next to me. I was like, this guy's who is this guy? He's really funny. And uh, he listens in. And you, you were probably only doing about eight minutes on that show. And by the end of your set, every comic in that room was quiet listening to you mm-hmm. through a TV screen. So we, we were all just really floored um, because that was you you were new to all of us. Then I think you were kind of just making your first visits to L.A. That's cool to hear. That's nice to hear that green room with that TV there. I'm very introverted, so I don't spend a lot of time in that green room unless I know people in there. Mm-hmm. But the one gag, the one gag that I try almost any time that I'm there is that, you know, like a comic is always on that TV. I grab the remote and I ask if anything else is on. 
<laughs> and it works about a third of the time. So I remember driving with you uh, a few years ago. I want to say three, four years ago, we drove up and did a gig like San Luis Obispo, some nice big theater up there. But Had to be more than that, by the way. I've been in I've been in New York for just coming up on on four years, so it might have been more than four years ago. Well, I'm just. I'm afraid of like mortality. Yeah, so. <laughs> I'm not. Bring it on, baby. So yesterday. <laughs> yeah, and I remember it, it was neat because we like we connected on a lot of things, comedy, like. Mm-hmm. But I I I felt bad because I didn't have a a windshield visor on the passenger side of the car, <laughs> so like the entire ride you were just like having to do the dad at his son's baseball game (laughs) (laughs) hand visor yeah when we when we got there john fox is like how are you guys and you said something about like probably a little sunburn and you're like half kidding and then i did pay you know 200 bucks the next day for a a visor and i wanted to i wanted to be (laughs) like your visor guy (laughs) if if we ever go on a trip again i promise you'll have shade You had a great joke in SLO. Well, what city were we? It wasn't SLO that we were actually in. It was in a smaller city than that. And you were making fun of the town. He says, is there anything to do here? Is there, is there anywhere to eat? And someone goes, in and out. And you go, in and out. That's what I'm going to do to your city. I'm going to be in and I'm leaving right away. <laughs> <laughs> so we, before we get into our favorite lessons from the book, I wanted to ask if this was true. You said sometimes you'll listen to a book and read it at the same time. That is what I do. I didn't do it with this book. Why is that? Is that to like internalize? I just wouldn't really absorb it either way. I would. I, I pick up like 30% of it just reading. So I'm just very ADD. I'm just very dumb. <laughs> Not, you're not dumb, but I, I know that you have you have a, a newer joke where you mention it, and I love yeah. that you have a tagline in there that I'm going to butcher, but I'm not going to make you do it because I hate it when people do that to me. But it, <laughs> it's something about like the more senses that you can use yeah. over a book. Like you said something about like if it came in Braille, I would be tonguing the bumps. <laughs> so I was just trying to think of all the senses I could encapsulate. Yeah. It makes me feel so dumb, but I do. I do enjoy books. Uh, but this was this was a good read. So, what did you what did you think broadly uh, of the book? What's sort of your takeaway from it? I mean, amazing. It was it was entertaining as a as a period piece because mm, seeing the the cultural shifts and how little things are different today. How every generation thinks they created rebellion. And- <laughs> He's a skilled writer, which I appreciate because yes. I feel like you can tell um, when someone is a writer or when someone is just famous and then writes a book. Right. Yes. <laughs> and he he did stylistically, and then with like allowing you to empathize with uh, Steve Martin in a way that when you're reading it, you are still sort of seeing it through his eyes and not as a fan to the point where like you get annoyed at the things that people are doing to him when he's ultra famous. You feel mm-hmm. like you're with him like could you just leave us alone yeah the one detail that like really struck me is just wonderfully specific he decided to wear a white suit for visibility in large arenas (laughs) he said i switched to a white suit because i was so far away that white was more visible on the dark stage and then people speculated that i was wearing a three-piece suit as some sign of conformity because the three-piece suit was a very buttoned up look but truly i just needed the vest because my shirt would come unbloused (laughs) and that's really interesting to me i love details like that it's crazy to me like the the things that you have to be concerned about when you're that successful that most other people will never have to deal with dave and 
I have talked about this with like J.K. Rowling's books, who by the time like books five, six, seven come mm-hmm. out, Harry Potter, they have these, what is it, Dave? It's like an environmental caution because of how many trees they're going to have, they had to cut down to make this book. Oh, sure. Yeah, we regret the number of forests that were felled for this book. <laughs> Something like that, yeah. To be Steve Martin and think, well, if the back row is a quarter mile away, maybe I need to switch up the wardrobe. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the, how the Beatles would switch instruments once the stadiums got too loud for people to tell the difference. Oh, Is that right? I think, I think there were shows where they had to stay in beat just visually by looking at each other and seeing when the drums were coming down because they couldn't hear each other. <laughs> All right, so here are our favorite lessons from Born Standing Up. So number one, put yourself in a position where you can get reps. So he he starts with this breakdown of his career that I love. He says, I did stand-up comedy for 18 years, 10 years spent learning, four years spent refining, and four years spent in wild success. And kind of one of the patterns you see in the book is he's constantly hustling so that he can get chances to work on his craft. So even when he was 10, you know, he applied to work at Disneyland. And he said, I spoke with a vendor and told him my resume. No experience at anything. And so he he gets that Disneyland job. He works there for a few years till he's 15. And then he works at Disney's magic shop and he starts getting, you know, his first experience telling jokes to audiences. And he says something that I think is wonderful. And Kellen, I think you'll connect with it. I had absolutely no gifts. I could not sing or dance. And the only acting I did was really just shouting. Thankfully, perseverance is a great substitute for talent. I want to ask you both as stand-up comics, uh, you know, how, how did you go about trying to get those early reps? I was doing comedy for about three months before I realized that there was more than just one Monday show in Houston every (laughs) week. I just realized that it was like I did endurance sports. I loved running as, as when I was younger, then I moved to swimming. And these were sports where the mindset was for whoever puts in the most hours will be the best. Yeah. And uh, it just very quickly clicked of find every second of stage time you can manage. And then the goal to get the most stage time, moving away from not doing well every time, just doing it as much as you can. And then you then bombing hurt less because the goal wasn't to avoid bombing. The goal was just to get the most stage time. So if you just said, I did 10 spots this week and that's what i should be happy about not not that i bombed nine of them uh you could you could keep your sanity and a sense of self-respect that's an interesting like shifted metric i was similar unfortunately it took me closer to a year to realize that Mm -hmm. every open mic was not an event (laughs) (laughs) at the time it was so big for me to even try anything like that And so, but I I did like one a month and I was ignorant too. And at the time, every show just seemed so big and so special, even though I was completely new. And my friends and family come to this one show in San Francisco that was literally just a sports pub. I'd worn like this, I an ironed button-up shirt that was tucked in, belt and everything. Mm-hmm. I remember like sort of pacing out front and Mo Mandel comes up. And we didn't know each other at the time. And he goes, you know, this is just like, like an open mic, right? <laughs> and, I, and I was so embarrassed. Like it was such a big learning moment for me at that point that he had just come from a show and he was headed to another one that I was like, yeah, I just, you know, I just came from a wedding. It was like a Tuesday. <laughs> That's so great. That's when I came to the realization that, oh yeah, like I just need to to keep doing this and not be precious about each one of these. Tick, 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 tick. Yep. I, I do think in terms of putting yourself in the right environment has a big impact on your ability to get reps. 
Uh, mm-hmm. Something I learned today, there's this guy, James Fitzsimmons, who is one of the all-time great horse trainers. And when he was a kid, a company literally built a horse track around his house. So as a kid, he could just step outside and he's right on the horse track. And so I, I think those kinds of environments really can contribute to you know you getting those reps. So he, he went on to become this phenomenal horse trainer. His brother became a gambling addict. Like everyone, <laughs> you're in... <laughs> so I, I do think... Everyone should find that place where they can get their rep. You're relating that with Steve Martin, I assume, right? That his like his dad, as bad of a father as he was, like sure. they coincidentally moved within like five minutes of Disneyland and three minutes of Knott's Berry Farm, where he uh, he started his is basically his Beatles Hamburg experience of sure. performing every day. Yeah, like he was in the vicinity of places where he could get a lot of stage time relative to other people. And there's something he said in his master class about the importance of moving to a city with opportunities in your field, he said, when it's time for your name to be called, you got to be within pointing distance. It's true. Something else that, that helped me, I didn't live within the a near vicinity, like I said, 45 minutes of San Francisco. So something that helped me, a takeaway from this for me, for anyone out there is pursuing comedy or something in the arts where you need to get in you know, reps every night, is that I was working for a company where I had a, they gave me a truck. And so I saved a lot of money on gas by using the company truck to go to shows at night. <laughs> <laughs> when I uh, when I moved to LA, I moved to LA maybe a little over two years into comedy, and I, I just had such an ego. I had such a sense of entitlement, and I lived on Hampton Avenue. I found a place that was triangulated dead center between the Laugh Factory, the Comedy Store. And the Hollywood Improv. It was about wow. 0.8 to 0.9 miles from each of them. I could walk. Didn't get past at any of them. <laughs> I lived there for four years. Never regular at any of them. Uh, I, so I would strategically plan to go out of town for a week at a time. A week in Atlanta. A week in Houston. A week in Austin. And just line up a bunch of shows. Because when you say you're from L.A., they just think that means you're a big deal. <laughs> I did a Would lot. Would you of just that. walk into random clubs with like aviators on? I'd pull them off. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> just uh, wayfarers. Just. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that 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 kept me afloat. Was just finding those ways to strategically just go get those extra reps in. Yeah, LA is definitely not a place to get good to no. get better at comedy. Yeah, which is why I imagine one of the reasons why you live in New York now. Before COVID, I'm sure you were able to get in much more, many more reps than than yeah. here in, in los angeles yeah uh, it's oh, wow. it's a lot more and i but i moved here because my girlfriend had a job here and my girlfriend was in austin i was in la and um we figured you know let's just meet right in the middle yeah. <laughs> right. so that's so those are the takeaways from this point is uh have a, a girlfriend with a great job in yeah. a metropolis and get a company vehicle get a company vehicle. <laughs> <laughs> so mooch is the answer Yeah, that is the common theme. One of my favorite lessons. So number two for me is don't research too much about how to make your art. I think this applies to all the arts, even though we're speaking through the medium of stand-up comedy, which I know there's always this like perpetual debate of whether or not it's art. But I like to think it is because I feel better about bombing if afterwards I can at least call myself an artist. Yeah, (laughs) It's it's a better way of feeling sad. So Steve Martin, when he was, there's this whole chapter called The Road. And he talks about going on on the road with, when he still maintained anonymity for, for the most part, especially at the time when communication 
communication with family is very expensive with a payphone. There, you know, obviously weren't weren't phones or computers or the internet to bond. So he was just sort of very isolated. And he says, "Quote: In this netherworld, I was free to experiment. There were no mentors to tell me what to do. There were no guidebooks for doing stand up. Everything was learned in practice." End quote. That really resonated with me. Just that that idea. I'm always wary of comedy classes. Uh, especially the ones that take 12 weeks. Like, I feel like there are like basic fundamentals that you can learn up front, things that maybe aren't obvious to every beginner, you know, prepare your material beforehand, set the mic stand behind you, don't do Tinder jokes, et cetera. Like maybe 10 of those things that you could learn in like 15 minutes. Speaking of which, you can sign up for my 15-minute comedy course, the 10 (laughs) essential lessons. No, I don't. Oh, I would would pay for that. (laughs) You just get on stage over and over. You improve the jokes that work and you drop the ones that don't. Does the class have a company car? <laughs> a truck. <laughs> so Doug Stanhope he tells a story of he gives advice to a comic, and then this other comedian, Joey um, Scazzola, says to him, "Never give anyone advice because you're only telling them how to be more like you." Yeah. Hmm. Make no mistake, I love talking about comedy, analyzing jokes and joke structure. And but I, I think one mistake I try and avoid is saying that comedy should be yeah. a certain way. Sure. He continues, and the lonely road with no critical eyes watching was the place to dig up my boldest or dumbest ideas and put them on stage. I love that idea because that is the beauty of comedy and the hardest part of comedy is sort of when you do sort of take those stretches or you're, you have absolutely no idea if this is going to work. That's that's what, what's crazy to me uh, uh, about comedy is this like symbiotic relationship that you have to have with the audience where no one member of the audience is a comedy expert, but the, like the hive mind of the audience knows how to edit your jokes better than you do. So I, I, I love the idea that he's trying these crazy things. I would love to see the stuff that he scrapped, you know, because he's the type of guy that definitely was committing 150% to these crazy things. So I wanted to ask you, Matthew, like, what's what's one of the boldest or dumbest things that you've done on stage? For me... It was in my within my first like year or so of doing comedy. I had I would bring out this tiny plastic guitar. It was a toy guitar, and I would hit buttons on it, and I would just do one liners because I saw other comics would use a, an actual guitar. But the joke was, "This is a a toy, and it's very embarrassing." And I'm glad that there's no footage of it. <laughs> that sounds brilliant. But, <laughs> but what came out of it is that I ended up writing a lot more one liners at the time. That when I scrapped the guitar, it was sort of like this magic feather that I let go of. And I was like, oh, they are, you know, they, they will just laugh at me and not just this hunk of, you know, purple plastic. Yeah. My boldest thing, I don't know if it's the boldest, but it's the first that comes to mind. It's this thing I'm doing now uh, post COVID, but I go on stage with my mask on and I, I've changed the wording, but I just say, uh, I'm not super afraid of COVID while I remove four masks. <laughs> And it's very silly. I love it very much. And though I obviously won't do it forever, it did teach me something really cool that I didn't realize. It taught me that when I get on stage, I immediately feel like once the microphone is near my mouth, the soonest I can start speaking, I need to. And this mask thing forced me to not speak for Hmm. a few seconds. And I realized if I go on stage and don't say anything for 
just a full two seconds, I have much more command of the audience. Rather than treating the microphone like a, like the edge of a raft that you're just having to <laughs> climb over <laughs> immediately. Yeah. Yeah, just, uh, just float around for a bit. So my takeaway from this point is... You don't have to read books. You don't have to take classes. Just just learn a few of the fundamentals and then get out there. You can take risks. Don't deliberately create a style. Like style will emerge as you just improve. Just learn the fundamentals and just do it. And I, I do believe that that applies to the arts in general. All right, number three, pay attention to every detail. So I, I love this quote from Steve where he's just talking about the the level of attention that had to go into facilitating the best set possible. He said, I worried about the sound system, ambient noise, hecklers, drunks, lighting, sudden clangs, latecomers, loud talkers. I can remember retiming a punchline to fit around the crash of a dropped glass or raising my voice to cover a patron's ill-timed sneeze microseconds before the interruption happened. So I think with a lot of great creators, you see them giving that kind of attention to detail to every part of their process. So Beyonce in Homecoming, which I think is a masterpiece, she's directing every part of it down to the way that they record the sound of stomping on the bleachers. And there's this clip where she's pretty upset that that's not being recorded correctly. Steve Jobs, you know, he wanted every interaction with Apple to be beautiful and excellent. So he made the Apple Store. He made very clean Apple packaging. He found Apple. Apple dollars were most beautiful in a tax haven. <laughs> All right. Lesson four, the people who like you will find you. And I would add to you that- You sound like my mom. <laughs> <laughs> I would add and ignore the ones who don't like you. And this, this is a lesson that took too long for me to learn. But Steve Martin, he tells the story of how after playing basically anonymously on the road for a while, opening for other comedians to highly mixed reviews, he finally starts getting some notoriety from TV appearances and everything starts to change. Uh, most notably at this one show he headlines in San Francisco where people are there just to see him. He said that his jokes are hitting harder at this show than they had in the past, and it's no wonder. It wasn't that the jokes had changed. The audience had. The audience was now made up of fans there to specifically see him. It was the people. That's what it was. Like when you when you are in a place where people don't know who you are, you're getting this wild mix. And isn't it crazy how people that just come because they got free tickets feel so entitled for you to give them the type of comedy that makes them laugh? Blows my mind. <laughs> like you wouldn't you wouldn't just like blindly buy tickets to a, a, a concert. Like, don't tell me who the band is. I don't want to know any of their stuff. <laughs> That's how, and if I go there and I don't like it, it's their fault. Imagine if someone said, here's tickets to a music show. We're not going to tell you what genre. <laughs> a music show. Because there's yeah. genres of comedy, but we, we act like there's not. Imagine you go to a music show, like, could be country, could be jazz. And a okay. hundred people all have to sit there and enjoy it no matter what. <laughs> Crazy, man. And, and we're, we're the only... The only form of entertainment that's expected to stay so broad, it's expected to stay oh, yeah. universal. No, musicians are not, unless you're a cover artist at a coffee shop, you're not beholden to everyone's taste. <laughs> it's that philosophy that's drilled into young comics. Never blame the crowd. You can never blame the crowd. That's when you start getting bad. But eventually, you have to. <laughs> 
that I'm, it sounds like being a politician where if you're a presidential candidate, you're somehow expected to appeal to, you know, 150 million people. (laughs) Well, if I only make 51% of people laugh, then I'm a bad comedian. If a politician does it, they're president. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Sam Kinison said, maybe one of the most polarizing comics of all time. He said, I'm not here to make everyone like me. I'm here to make a few people love me. Yeah. Hmm. I was doing a show in South Carolina in this, it was like the third story of this restaurant. And there were maybe 20 people in this crowd and four of them walked out halfway through my set. It was in the middle of a joke about like buying milk on a slanted shelf. And these four people left and I was just, I made fun of them (laughs) as they were walking out. They walked uh, out in a fence? Are they lactose intolerant? (laughs) No, I just assumed that they were like, I am making fun of them as they're walking out. I've got the microphone phone they can hear me as they're going out when the show is over <laughs> the manager came up to me and he said so that couple they came with a couple of friends they wanted to apologize to you their babysitter texted them because their son broke his arm <gasps> so these people are like just quietly trying to go to the hospital and i'm like oh you don't like milk what a bunch of idiots i'd love if it was like yeah he was at the grocery store a lot of milk fell on him (laughs) shattered every bone in his body And so, a great story that illustrates this in the book, Steve Martin says that after his 16th and most successful appearance on The Tonight Show, the next day, he went into an antique store on La Brea, and the woman working there, this older woman working there says, are you that boy who was on Johnny Carson last night? And he goes, yes, I am. And she just says, yuck. So perfect. (laughs) And it's just such that great, just the same principle of let the people come to you who like to, and just don't spend time trying to please the yuck people. (laughs) Trying to penetrate the antiquing market. So that's that's my takeaway from this point, is that whatever you're, you're creating and putting out there, there will be people who follow it. Just continue to do what pleases you and be grateful for who comes along for the ride. But don't make changes based on people who don't like your work in the first place. They're already proving to be a hard sell. And your changes will ultimately discourage the people who already love you in the first place. All right. So now let's go on to uh, random facts. He talks about bombing at one point and he says that he suffers. He suffered death, comedy death. Which is worse than regular death. (laughs) That's what you should have said to that family whose son broke all his bones. (laughs) Uh, Here's one of my favorite Steve Martin quotes. He says, be so good they can't ignore you. Which I think is a great quote, but I also think it would be funny to pretend not to hear him. Um, another story of his that I loved, he one of his early stand-up jobs was doing stand-up comedy at 3 p.m. in a drive-in movie theater under like the heat of the sun, and if people thought he was funny, they would honk. Well, <laughs> I had that on my list, too, because he ends it with, you might think I'm kidding, but I'm not. And at this point, after a year of COVID, I'm like, no, I, I believe you, Steve, because <laughs> I did that in Irvine a week ago. <laughs> There's this one story in there that makes me feel bad for the hotel workers where he says, 
he's getting to a point where he's he's ultra famous and he's getting tired of his own jokes because now he now that he's not in these intimate night to night like comedy club settings, there's so much more pressure for people who have paid to see him massive amounts of money to see him in these stadiums. So he's not really experimenting anymore. He's not trying out new material. And we all know like how quickly you you know jokes can start feeling old. Uh, and he said having room service delivered by four people with arrows through their heads <laughs> and he says it, it was hard to respond with the expected glee and i just imagine like <laughs> how soul crushing must that have been for those guys <laughs> to like be so excited you bought these props on purpose he opens the door to get his pizza and he's just like uh and like shuts the door it's so funny, it's so funny of him being like I said honey mustard dressing. <laughs> <laughs> They're just like... <laughs> Sorry. I know this is dark, but like, how would anyone keep a straight face like at the funeral if Steve Martin ends up dying by an arrow? <laughs> it would be like if Gallagher got crushed by a giant mallet. Like you... <laughs> So here's another quote I think Kellen will connect with. You've got to give yourself room to be bad because you learn more from being bad than you do from being great. Mm. Oh, thanks. And then, <laughs> and then another one just following up. I touched on this earlier, but there's this great quote in his master class where he talks about why you should move to the city that has opportunities. And again, it's that quote, when it's your turn to be picked, you got to be within pointing distance. And there's actually this really great book on that subject I like called Who's Your City, where it talks about the value of finding the right city for you and the different cities that are like optimally suited for whatever your field is. But I do realize I should probably take that to heart since I'm a comedian in Provo, Utah, and not even the <laughs> urban part of Provo, Utah. <laughs> but thanks again, Matthew, so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Yeah, Detroit. thank you so much, Matthew. Thank you so much, Dave. Yeah. Pleasure meeting you. See y'all thanks hopefully again, soon. Hopefully soon without a mask. All right, Bye. man. Bye. All right, to recap, our favorite lessons from Born Standing Up. One, put yourself in a position where you can get reps. Two, don't research too much about how to make your art. Three, pay attention to every detail. Four, the people who like you will find you. And five, be one third of the three amigos. Mm -hmm.